0: Paul declaring that Jesus is Lord is basically saying that Caesar is not. Takes what's potential in
1: Paul and then sort of actualizes it. That
0: there is like this perpetual construction of what it means to be Christian. Yo... Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who study philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we can bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith.
1: And I am Troy Polidori.
0: And we're gonna jump back into our Parliamentary Book Club. That's Going the through one? Daniel Is that the one the parla- Parliamentary Book Club? Um going through Daniel Colucciello Barber's On Diaspora. We've gone through chapters one and two, well the intro chapters one and two, in two previous episodes over the past month, so go have a look for those if you want to get caught up. But we're going to be jumping into chapter three today, where he's talking about uh, a sort of revised understanding or a problematized understanding of Pauline theology from within the framework that he's already established about this notion of like a diasporic Christianity within a framework of imminence. Um, And if that doesn't make any sense, then we'll try to give a brief recap when we get into the main segment, but also go back and check uh, episodes one and two so you can get caught up. But before we do anything, we want to give a shout out to our sponsors over at MUBI. Uh, MUBI is an online streaming service that is unlike those other streaming services. The great thing about MUBI is that they specialize in curating uh, classics from regions all around the world as well as art films, they do interesting documentaries. They look for films that may have flown under the radar, things that you might not have been familiar with or maybe that you have been familiar with but you just didn't really know how to find like a Vim Vendors film or something like that. Well, the wonderful thing is that Movie kind of does all that work for you. It's not just a hodgepodge of shit that's thrown against the wall but rather they curate 30 selected films at a time and they are offering all of Owls at Dawn listeners a free 30-day extended trial if you go to Mubi.com slash owls at dawn. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash owls at dawn. And Troy's actually going to tell you about a film that is currently in their rotation that he thinks you guys should check out.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to recommend a film called Project Nim. Uh, It's available on Mubi now. Um, It's a film by James Marsh, a documentarian. He's done a number of films, probably most notably Man on Wire. Remember that film about the uh, guy who walked across the wire um, between the World Trade Center buildings um, before the, uh, before they came down. Um, he also did uh, The Theory of Everything, the uh, Stephen Hawking uh, biopic that came out uh, a few years ago. And Project Nim is about uh, a baby chimp who is, um, in this, uh, sort of real life experiments, is able to grow up with human parents and treated like a human child and taught American Sign Language in order to uh, see how he's able to develop communication skills. And um, I think it was meant as a, as a challenge to Noam Chomsky's um, theory that only humans uh, were, had this um, innate ability to develop language. I know that it's disputed in linguistic circles as to whether or not the experiment was actually evidence against that thesis. But um, regardless of that, it's, it's A really interesting take on uh human socialization and um the learning of language and and all these issues and it's also very heartwarming to just watch a um be treated as a child it's a wonderful film i would encourage anybody um, who's interested in any of those areas or in human animal relations or things like that uh, to give it a try available on movie now sick
0: that sounds kind of rad. And as I've said in previous spots uh, when movie has sponsored us, there are different regional libraries, so make sure you go check out what your regional library is, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, Troy is obviously talking about the American library. I'm currently in, the, in Australia, so my library has probably got a couple of different films, um, but... You know, there are some amazing ones here. There's uh, films by Francois Truffaut, particularly the film that's called Confidentially Yours. Um, there's the, I think, fantastic film by David Mackenzie called Starred Up. Um, I mentioned Wim Vendors earlier. There is a Wim Vendors film on here. Um, there's also Blackfish, which is that really kind of famous uh, documentary that raised a lot of attention about the, let's say, mistreatment of animals at, SeaWorld parks uh, and other similar related aquatic theme parks around the world. So go to Movie, they um, are great. Like I said, prestige pieces, independent cinema, classics of cinema, um, regional films from all around the world. And the way that they do it is by having 30 films in rotation at a given time. So you have 30 days to watch a film. And then when the film drops off, uh, every day a film drops off and a new one comes on that starts its 30-day rotation. So go to movie.com slash owlsatdawn to get your 30-day free extended trial. Thank you, movie. And also we have a Patreon. Right, Troy? Yeah. yeah. If you want to go to patreon.com slash owls at
1: dawn, you can support us there. And we have a bunch of different goodies you can access, including bonus episodes, um, one of which will come out, I'm guessing, con- coterminous with this episode um, mm-hmm. about a special topic, which is near and dear to my heart, as well as yours, Austin. But I think it's, it's a little bit more of, of my, my sort of passion. Uh, yeah, passion. This, is your,
0: this is your fanboy material.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. We may even just <laughs> change this podcast to be no longer about philosophy anymore, but um, stay tuned for that. You can also access the uh, Democracy Motherfuckers uh, tier, uh, which is where you're able to contribute towards uh, picking a, spo- a Patreon-sponsored topic for a future episode of the show. Uh, we have one going, or a poll going right now, so either if you are a Patreon currently, please go onto the Patreon sites and add your uh favorite topics to the list and if you're not a patreon a patron then you can go ahead and go to patreon sign up and then join uh that tier of access as well yeah that's right but you know what we gotta do first dude is we gotta do the shitty minute Ooh, this is the part of the show where one of us rants and raves about wherever it is that is grunning our gears this week so austin what's got you down
0: all right so my shitty minute for this week is about a trend And it's not a disturbing trend, but it's a trend that I have witnessed in online left and not just online left, but also in the publishing world um, sort of uh, environments. And it was actually confirmed to me by a really interesting seminar that I went to this week with a Belgian philosopher named Michel Ferrer and a sociologist named Melinda Cooper here in Sydney. And it was a seminar on progressive publishing like how to publish for um, like, popular but also academic outlets today if you're trying to publish like progressive, political, or theoretical works. And it was so interesting because it really tied into, and I think it's helping me to understand the pet peeve. So first I'll tell you the pet peeve, and then I'll tell you about the seminar. So the pet peeve is that I feel like there's actually like a really subtle anti-intellectualism that is very rampant in the left right now. And it doesn't seem like it is because it takes the form of being politically astute and politically concerned with, like, quote-unquote, real material analysis to the neglect of, like, theoretical abstractions or to the neglect of theoretical musings or high theory or the seminar room, as I've seen it called in, in various different contexts. And what it basically amounts to, from from what I can gather, is that uh, the notion of abstraction is used as a derogatory term to basically discredit um, theoretical musings that don't seem to have immediate, or maybe at all, even down the road, practical application or import. And the reason that I've, I've, I've found it a bit frustrating are a couple of reasons. One, I think all human thought is abstraction, so it seems to be a non sequitur. Um, but more than that, uh, it, it also seems to... Um, Valorize certain commonsensical understandings or ways of thinking or domains of knowledge, and immediately serves to discredit those that are foreign, that seem to be abstruse. But what I would contend is that the reason they seem to be abstruse, or the reason they seem to be quote unquote abstract and purely theoretical, is that they just haven't been inoc- or uh, they haven't been inculcated into the common parlance. They haven't been inculcated into the the realm of the common sense. Um, but then I went to this, this publishing uh, seminar thing. And one of the things that both uh, Melinda Cooper and Michelle Fair uh, discussed was how there's been a turn, even in publishing, towards a demand, even at the academic houses. And Melinda edits a series for Stanford University Press, so one of the top five university presses. And Michelle is the founder of one of the best trade presses in the world that is distributed by MIT Press that's called Zone Books. So they're, they, they speak from a, a relative position of know-how and authority. And one of the things they were talking about was how um, a large percentage of these publishing houses, both at the academic and trade level, are actually demanding more political and concrete books. And they kind of attribute this to the rise of a sort of um, greater awareness of political and economic language uh, post-GFC, the global financial collapse in 07 to 09, which is a good thing, right? That's a good thing that people – that the average person, maybe because they were introduced to the 1% v. 99% or to this – understanding of like mortgage-backed securities or whatever because of listening to the news and then being concerned with what were the causes of this financial collapse. They, people have become more introduced into what was before that abstract uh, or abstruse theoretical economic language, but they were introduced in a very um uh through very kind of like popular slogans, but then now people can read a book by like Wolfgang Streck, uh, you know, Buying Time or How Will Capitalism End or something like that which have become, like, bestsellers. They sell tens and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of copies. And, you know, Wolfgang Streck, prior to this, is, a, you know, he's a sociologist and not many people on the street are reading sociological textbooks on, uh, on like, economic history or anything like that or economic theory. Um, so they said, so There's that's a good thing about that. And they weren't bemoaning this. This is just me now kind of like fitting in my thoughts into this. And I think part of the reason why I've noticed this subtle anti-intellectualism is because the new common sense is geared towards explicit and maybe um, to the neglect of theoretical, but explicit and uh, concrete political prescriptions uh, and analysis to the neglect of high theory, to the neglect of um, like... Any notion of normativity or seeking the greatest good or the metaphysical questions that um, have always kind of circled around in philosophical, but even political economic frameworks. Like when you read the early Marx, he's obviously extremely metaphysical, right? So um, it was really weird. It was it, it's kind of like this frustration, and I've been trying to figure out like what is the source of it. And I think um, the source of it is really it's fucking Jacobins' fault, is what I'm saying. So fuck you, <laughs> Jacobin. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's because it's a good. It's a good thing. It's it's actually a good thing. So it this is this is like a, a frustration that I've also started to now realize the source to, which doesn't alleviate the frustration, but now it kind of gives me a little bit of a handle on how to assess it further, if that makes sense. You know? So that's my yeah. shitty minute.
1: Yeah, dude. Um this is very non-rant material. This is very considered and, and eloquent. I'm not appreciating
0: how calm um this whole thing has been. Oh, but, fuck um, you, Bhaskar Sankara. <laughs> you, you, you basically turned everybody into a bunch of like political uh, dummies who don't care about theory anymore, and they have no capacity for doing philosophy. Uh, is that good? I'm but just worried no, that you're, Bhaskar, you're setting a standard that
1: I'm not going to be able to meet, because I like to, <laughs> like to just rant and, and not have any like linear thoughts. <laughs> but no, I, I struggle <laughs> with the same thing, dude, because you know what, I, I like that you said that what, what some people consider abstract is really just unfamiliarity. Right? That's right and that's certainly true. I do think that there's a sense in which the antipathy towards high theory or um, you know ivory tower thinking or whatever uh, sort of idiom you want to attach to it, there is something there right There's some truth to the fact that especially in, in America, um, academic work is often incentivized not because it has some even theoretical purpose, let alone practical purpose. But because y'all need to publish or you die, right? Mm. It's a publish or perish Mm. mentality. And that absolutely does produce a lot of work that just doesn't really matter. Um, And it's sometimes navel gazing and dealing with problems simply for the sake of dealing with problems. And this doesn't necessarily fall into the like, you know, certain debates being, like in philosophy, we'll call them merely verbal disputes, right? Mm. Disputes are debates Mm. that are simply about verbal facts rather than about nonverbal facts. That's a, a different but overlapping uh, kind of territory. So there's some truth to that, right? And I think everybody who works in the academy is aware of that and doesn't want to be contributing towards that phenomenon um, because you know you only get into academics in the first place because you love it and think it matters in some respect, right? Um, so I think making people more aware of that and trying to change that atmosphere in, in the academy is good but then at the same time like there's nobody out there who like likes to do this kind of stuff everyone wants to do work that's worthwhile and meaningful and everyone's most of their work at least is going to be that way so it's really uncharitable i think to just kind of dismiss things as being overly abstract or or high theory or whatever it's, it you should have some sort of like hermeneutic of charity there to say well what what does the author think is worthwhile in this enterprise, and even if we don't want to go down to the author's rows what is worthwhile in this enterprise, even outside of what the author thinks? And I'm pretty, right. I'm pretty confident you can always make a, a fairly good case that there's something worthwhile there. And even yeah, if I there's not, the worst case scenario is okay. There's nothing there, so just don't worry about it.
0: <laughs> so then you've worked through it exactly. Yeah, but the you've point is that this is out there's no effort for that dialectic even. This is just a simple way of establishing that here's the criteria and anything that is outside of those bounds, then we can have a clear demarcation of what is sayable and what is non-sayable in political discourse. And if you're deemed to be abstract in your thinking, then you are automatically discredited. Now, part of me obviously has like a personal investment into this because I enjoy high theory and I do employ language that is oftentimes abstract and philosophical. But it's because two things. One, I have some bad habits from uh, studying a lot of continental philosophy, and I'm aware of that. <laughs> um, so I'm aware of that, and I'm, I'm constantly working through how to translate, if you will, some of these theoretical uh, insular debates um, and how to translate them into common political uh, parlance. The other problem is, too, is I spend a lot of time in academic circles where... It is common sense when I'm using these jargon terms, right? But again, that's still feeding into the insularity. So that, again, is not necessarily a great thing when you're trying to then communicate on a platform like Twitter or Facebook or something like that, right? Um, but then the other problem, again, is just that that's not always the case. That there is just a sense in which, like, for my mom, if my mom read the Communist Manifesto, she would have a very difficult time dealing with some of those themes, you know? Um not that she wouldn't understand any of it, because there is a lot of common sense that it was written as a manifesto, but nevertheless, she does not speak the language of politics and economics. Like, that's just not her world. Now, if you go into her world, into the world of design, and into the world of uh, outdoor patio furniture, and into the world of... Um, like, buying in uh, certain markets, you might, if you're very f- familiar with the language of capital, you might be like, what the fuck are you talking about with, like, this pattern and this design and this, this this uh, you know, this designer? And so the problem is that there's a relativity of your position, I think, that also determines how it is you determine what is abstract and what is kind of, let's say, accessible or like a genuine material or structural analysis, you know? And I think we need to kind of be patient in that, in that tension of figuring out why it is that this seems to be abstract, why it does seem to be sort of abstruse, why it does seem to be something that is just outside the bounds of what is required for the current political moment in order to manifest programs that are going to immediately produce material benefit. Because we can't, we can't just simply engage at the level of technological logic. We can't just become technocratic managerialist Marxists or leftists or post-Marxists or communists or progressives or whatever the fuck you are because then you end up just playing the very game of the system that you're seeking to contest and that's one of the things that is extremely important about like a Marxist analysis in the first place in the middle of the 1800s because he's precisely contesting the common sense of his day in trying to reground new foundations that have new metaphysical foundations as well and so similarly, I think if we're going to take up that project and that mantle, which actually I think ties into what we're going to talk about in our main segment here, is that there is a necessary antagonism and contestation to the embedded logics of the system themselves, which means that we have to understand the logic of the system itself and make sure that we're not reproducing it by our very own sort of technological mechanisms.
1: Yeah, dude, that's, let's use that as a segue into talking about Barbara and
0: Paul, yeah? Okay, you talk about it. You start us off. <music> All right, so we're starting chapter
1: three of Dan Barber's book on diaspora. Um, This chapter is titled The World in the Wake of Pauline Thought. So just to recap really quickly, the first chapter in the book was on imminence, which is kind of a a theoretical directional uh, chapter talking about how Barber's notion of imminence and interparticularity and co-constitution and all these different terms we talked about back when we talked about chapter one, um, are set up and how the different rival paradigms of philosophy and theology can be situated with respect to that notion of eminence. Chapter two talked about the notion of diaspora um, and Christianity and about discontinuity and apocalyptic and all these things. And I was sort of, again, introducing more terms and setting some of the uh, setting the table a bit for getting into Christianity in particular through the advent of Paul's uh, introduction of his theology. Um, And I think a good way to start talking about this chapter is maybe setting the stage a little bit historically about the role that Paul is thought to play in Christian theology. Do you
0: think that's worthwhile? Yeah, that sounds great actually.
1: Yeah, so I think really briefly we can just say that Um, there's there's a kind of common refrain in maybe secular um, accounts of religion that Paul is the inventor of Christianity. And it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, right? Because anybody who maybe grew up in the church or has some experience with Christianity, otherwise, if you ask them who invented Christianity, I think the obvious answer would be, well, the one person is named after, right? Jesus (laughs) Christ. Um, Right. But, of course, the the reason for saying Paul is the inventor of Christianity is in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way is to say, well, whatever Jesus was doing, if Jesus had a sort of religion to him, it was a Jewish religion primarily, right? It was He thought himself as a Jew. He's, other people saw him as a Jew. He was called rabbi by his apostles, his disciples. And um, so he certainly would have seen himself as being Jewish and not separate from that. As much as he criticized um, sort of the Jewish religion, of the time in palestine he did it in a way that isn't all that different structurally than you know like jeremiah would have or isaiah would have so he's a prophet yeah. to the jews just as the prophets were right uh, whereas paul seems to be the one who really creates a break um, with judaism that doesn't mean that he didn't consider himself a jew and he didn't necessarily call himself a christian or call his new sect christianity but there's a break with christianity in that there's a huge emphasis on the Gentiles being involved in this new religion on moving away from the particular symbols that sort of unified Jews together like circumcision and um, the different uh, Jewish rites and so that that's the sense in which it's thought that Paul might be a better object for reference of the reference of the inventor of Christianity than Jesus was and that means that Paul then is going to be the person you go to when you're asking what's the foundation of Christian theology Right, since he's sort of the first great thinker of Christianity, even if Jesus is sort of the first great piece of content for Christian theology, Paul is the sort of creator of it.
0: Oh yeah, I was going to say also. Um, I had a really interesting discussion yesterday with a couple of, of friends after the uh, infamous Zizek and Peterson debate, um, <laughs> but we ended up getting into some interesting discussions about these kinds of themes. And there's also there seems to be a difference between. Like the esoteric and the exoteric between Paul and Jesus, or between Jesus and Paul, let's say. And that Jesus is kind of this um, esoteric mystic, that he's telling stories that are secret and that are hidden, right? You know, he says, Let those who have ears hear. So he tells things in parables, but then there's the bit about him going, into the secret rooms with his disciples and explaining everything and saying, you know, to you I explain everything, but you guys have the secrets to the kingdom. So there's this idea that there's still this like um, esoteric wisdom or maybe Gnosis, you know, kind of like almost like a Gnosticism that a lot of people find still in, in Jesus. Which then seems to kind of fade away in Paul towards the exoteric, towards building systems, towards building theology, towards doing political theology, towards, like, explicitly trying to make new dogma and institutional frameworks. You know, uh, Christians look to the book of Ephesians, and he's, you know, laying down mandates for how ecclesiology, for how the church is supposed to be ordered. And um, they look to... Uh, you know, Corinthians, about how it is that, like, love is supposed to be understood, or you look to Romans and you understand how it is that, um, uh, uh, I'm trying to even think right now of, of examples, but, um, yeah, for example, circumcision in Romans and Galatian, like, how are those things, are, are those things requirements for the Christian community? Again, ecclesiological, but also it's like other aspects of theology. And so I think that there's something interesting about people trying to see a break here, but what I really like um, is actually seeing these things as being sort of continuous, even if there is a sort of like discontinuity or rupture, but there's a there's a continuity and it goes back to, you know, the days when we were in theology of reading like N.T. Wright in his book, What St. Paul Really Said. And the conclusion is that he basically said the same thing as Jesus. It was just a different sort of expansion upon those concerns to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, to fulfill the promises of Judaism. So what you see in Paul is a real sort of Uh, agonistic effort to find out how to fit this person Jesus who he and the other early Christians believed to be the fulfillment of messianic expectations into those promises that they have carried with them for thousands of years and so it isn't so much a break so much as it as it is like a disjunctive synthesis and for me I'm so influenced by the work of the New Perspectives on Paul and Dan Barber talks about it and that create this kind of like linearity or this kind of continuity, let's say, um, that for me, I, I couldn't help but see that throughout as I was reading this chapter. I'm sure you saw that as well.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that, you know, we grew up in the evangelical, with the evangelical interpretation of the continuity between Jesus and Paul, which is basically like they shook hands and Jesus gave Paul the tablets for the epistles of the New Testament. <laughs> right. And uh yeah you know, he just emailed them to him, and then Paul just like forwarded them to the different churches, right? And that's um, right yeah, 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 which means it basically just kind of covers over the very idea that there's discontinuity there. Whereas the discontinuity is literally in the texts, right? that that the Jewish uh, leaders of the church, like Peter um and James in Jerusalem, had a beef with Paul and the way that he was interpreting. Um, Jesus. And Paul comes from, you know, outside of the apostles. He's not one of the 12. He didn't know Jesus personally. He persecuted Christians and killed them. So he's obviously going to come from a a different perspective of a sort, right? There has to be some account of the discontinuity between Jesus and Paul there. And the new perspective um, highlighted that for us and said, let's be honest here, there's something here we need to deal with. And then it took that discontinuity and sort of straightened it out, right? Made it rational, made it sensible. It did really charitable reading of Paul. Um, and that's what I think for us was so just enlightening, right? It just fulfilled all of the sort of intellectual desire for, um, for actually dealing with the material in a way that's deserved, that the material deserves, right? Dealing with it seriously rather than just covering it over, but then coming out of it with a complex but rational set of continuities. Between the mm. um, gospel texts and and Paul's epistles, right? Um, mm. But then that doesn't mean necessarily that everything the new perspective says is like correct or is good for like universalist politics or even any kind of politics today. Um, I think it just means um, that it's it's a good escape route for somebody who has just been told to ignore the very idea of discontinuity um, mm. from Jesus to Paul.
0: Yeah, you know what? It was a great escape route for me because I definitely can see a through line in my own trajectory from N.T. Wright and E.P. Sanders and James Dunn, who are the figureheads of The New Perspective, to concerns about Pistis Christu and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, what was the the righteousness of God? What is it? Dick a- yeah, uh, Dikai di- di- thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, in the genitive debates and all those things, I can see a throughline from that which talked about the importance of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant was that which was that God would create a singular people on the globe, right? Like I can see how that concern as manifested in Paul's struggle in trying to figure out how to interpret the Jesus event. How that fits into liberation theology, which then is explicitly concerned with universalism, right? And, like, the social gospel, which has this, like, post-millennial uh, concern about, like, imminentizing the eschaton, about bringing Jerusalem, the, the, the new Jerusalem, or bringing heaven into the world here and now, right? I can see how that fits then into liberation theology, which then led me to Karl Marx, which then led me to, like, my research now and, like, post-Marxian and uh, various other types of, you know, progressive, radical, political, uh, philosophical thinking. So there is, it is a nice escape route if you are in like an evangelical mindset or if you have been raised with a certain Protestant mindset. And then even I think if you come from like this secular idea where you think that, oh, well, you know, Jesus was just this nice ethical teacher. And then Paul is like the bad guy who starts the decline down into like oppressive dogmatic religion. It's, it's New perspective kind of creates a convergence for both of those narratives, so that you can have um, a different way of thinking about universal politics.
1: That's an important point too, right? We're mostly talking about the the account that you know evangelical Christianity gives for the continuity between Jesus and Paul. But The other one that exists, which you know, I think the two of us will really find out about later, is the sort of um, secular liberal account, which is that there is radical discontinuity between Jesus and Paul. And Jesus is the good one who has the moral religion we should all follow about loving your neighbor and turning the other cheek and whatnot. And then Paul's the one who turns that into women shouldn't speak and gays suck. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Right. And so he institutionalizes it. And with institution comes everything bad with religion, right? So there's a large right. sort of account of what's wrong with religion in the first place. And even the <laughs> idea that there's a, such a universal category as religion, there's a whole bunch of stuff there, right? And the Mm -hmm. new PP or the NPP also sort of converges that, right? And says, well, no, that's not really accurate. There isn't a sense in which Jesus had a moral religion that was completely separate from institutions. And there's not a sense in which Paul fully institutionalizes Christianity and brings out these sort of bad things that we just automatically assume that like Constantine follows from Paul necessarily as as like an uh, analytic entailment, right? So Mm. yeah, it absolutely collapses both of those things. And even though... I think like N.T. Wright obviously is probably a bit more of a conservative than either of us would ever be in almost any area, even theologically. Um, there's absolutely the through line there, right? I mean, the central idea in um, that kind of thinking about Paul is the neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither man nor woman. If there's ever been a more universalist declaration, I don't know that the, that I know one. And uh, yeah. if you take that as the central interpretive, uh, you know, uh, focus of um, what Paul's thinking, then you're going to come out with a pretty radically universalist program for politics.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and so that is, I mean that's kind of like background and stuff circling around what Barbara is really kind of addressing here. Those are some of the tensions I think that really sort of frame the background of this chapter because the real the real problem for Barbara is is this problem of community because remember Barbara is trying to he's trying to rethink how it is that we can think of Christianity, how, how we can use Christianity in ways that aren't just, um, ...inherited from the Orthodox tradition, and so he has this notion of a diasporic Christianity. So the question is, Is okay, so let's look at Paul now as our, our, as our next resource. How can we understand the diasporic conception of Christianity? And how can we then understand that idea that seems to be uh, a fracturing within the context of community? How can you have both fracture and community? And for him, that creates, I think, the central paradox that this chapter um, really is is working through. Does that sound right?
1: Yeah, and I think, I think there's one thesis that Barbara has here about Paul. It's that he has the the sort of material for thinking the idea of reciprocal co-constitution or as he calls it in the last chapter, interparticularity. Um but he doesn't fully fulfill that potential. He goes not that. Paul, the, does it, that Paul, yeah, does Paul, Paul does not fully mm. embrace that. And what we should do is, in a sense, celebrate the antagonism at the heart of uh, Paul's account of um, Christian theology against the world, right? That antagonism is good, but go further than Paul did and sort of almost like ontologizing that antagonism rather than just like sort of, I don't know what you say, maybe like particularize it or... Just compartmentalize it into this one aspect and then basically mm. continue on as if it never happened.
0: Mm. Yeah, here's a here's a quick little quote. He says, so it's not about a question it's not a question of reclaiming a purified Paul, but rather of understanding the tensions intrinsic to his thought and then constructing new decisions on them. So this goes to this idea of signification and expression that we find from his first chapter. That this process of new decisioning is the expression of imminence that is sort of, um, let's say, oh God, what is it? I I keep in my mind. I keep seeing when, when I'm thinking about like this, uh, his notion of like the form that is diasporic. I picture like, um, like static, you know, like from a TV, like white noise, um, but like the lines of totality are static. Does that make sense? like they're like they're like shaking rather than it being like a solid totality that that's what that's what christianity is but that rather his notion of christianity is one where even the boundaries are sort of like shaking and okay and you see what i mean i'm trying to articulate what that means but in my mind like that's that's kind of for some reason like a visual picture that always comes up and i don't i don't really know how to think of it um But that seems to be what he's trying to do here, is these new decisions are decisions that are new significations, they're new developments of meaning and order and, let's say, theology, but also political thinking um, that can enter into, that can become a part of the perpetual construction of Christian community as a diasporic entity, or as a diasporic disposition to the world that can open us up to new conceptions of universality new conceptions of global politics. And that, I think, is interesting.
1: Yeah, I think the most important part for me um, is to realize that Barber's not simply saying, hey, I have this new idea that comes from, like, some kind of theoretical lineage from Spinoza to Deleuze, and I'm going to, like, shoehorn it into Paul here and make Paul say something he doesn't want to say because, you know what, oh, well, Paul made a mistake, I'm going to fix it for him, right? He's not the mechanic Mm -hmm. coming into some car and then this, like, Fixing parts to it to make it, like to give it like nitrous oxide so it can just like speed up and be badass on a street race or whatever, right? <laughs> He's saying no. The materials were already there; they just weren't utilized, or they were utilized part of the way, or they were utilized just for this one portion of the car. When actually, we can utilize it for the whole thing, right? Mm. And if we do that, we can actually improve upon and do better than than Paul did, but not in a way that sort of bastardizes Paul and it, since takes what's Uh, potential in paul and then sort of actualizes it and so i Mm. don't even though he goes at great pains to say you know we're not trying to find the original meaning of paul we're not trying to interpret paul uh, necessarily there's some sense in which i think he's he's being more he has more fidelity to paul than uh, he might want to let on just because Mm. i think he obviously wants to stay away from the idea of like you know revisiting paul um and discovering the new meaning which is I guess probably given the time that this was published, what, 2008, 2009, he didn't want to be, like, another new book about, re- like, recapturing the meaning of Paul, the mysterious meaning of Paul, right? He wants to distance himself from that sort of set of literature, right? That mm. doesn't mean that this is just yeah. using Paul for his own sake, like like a, like a Zizek or a Baju is probably guilty of doing, and I'm sure they're, they're fine with being guilty of doing that.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I was actually just going to mention Bedou's book on Paul. So, for people who don't know, uh, philosopher Alain Bedou wrote a book on Paul. What's it called? St. Paul. It's it's just called St. Paul, yeah? Okay. Um, And it's basically his using um, Paul, the Pauline event, right? Or or, uh, Paul as a thinker of the Christian event, I should say, um, to sort of like buttress his own theory of the event as this transcendent other that breaks into... The fabric of an established world but I do find a lot of that in Barber there's a lot of resonance there there's crossroads so I feel like there is but I mean again Bed isn't the only thinker that has thought that way uh throughout this chapter Barber is quoting Jacob Taubes who I'm not as familiar with but um I do know that he comes up a lot in like this type of political theological thinking are you familiar more with Taubes yeah I
1: read his book on um, Paul's epistle to the Romans like way back in the day but I don't remember a whole lot of it. it's it's fairly scattered. I don't remember too much. Is about is it. he
0: like is he a thinker of the apocalypse? Yeah, is that kind of
1: definitely apocalyptic, okay. yeah.
0: Okay. I think he was kind of the so he...
1: originator of this whole Paul as a apoc- apocalyptic thinker rather than Paul as institutional thinker general idea. Although I'm not super familiar with that literature, I think that's the basic idea.
0: Okay. So, uh it's in this section Oh, I guess it's the first section here. Um, but he's basically working through how it is that Paul is contesting the powers, right? Which is, uh, what are what are the powers that Taubes is Paul? Um, how do we understand them? And it has to do with a relationship between law and like discontinuity and Jesus' contestation to the law. But does that mean that there is no law? Um, so he's kind of like working through how it is that we understand this event, this disruption of, that breaks itself into a pre-established framework that was a sort of continuous framework, right? And one of the things that I thought was interesting, he says is, uh, so the particularity of Paul's political theology founded as it is in Jesus should, according to my imminent diasporic account of Christianity, figure in not just as the founding instance of a new universality, but also as a different way of being universal, namely by being inter particular. And I thought this was so interesting because this is a new interpretation of conversion. This is a new way of understanding how it is that the Pauline political theology as an imminent diasporic account of Christianity opens up a new a way of being universal. And it's not this image of it's not a new image of universality that precedes you that is a totality that you then emulate yourself and subsume yourselves under, but rather uh, because that would be like the sort of imperfect nihilism that we talked about in the Prozorov book, I think, but rather it's a sort of transformation of your disposition that then flows outwards in a sort of constructive or expressive and then imminent um, motion or or flow that itself is then diasporic and then creative in, in its potency and I thought that was really interesting because then he ties this into the idea of the Christ event, how Christ comes from beyond, and then the follow-up to this section before he starts going into what he calls the four ambivalence, or the four points of ambivalence. He says, here's another quote, the universal of the world is opposed in the name of the universal from above. So Paul declaring that Jesus is Lord is basically saying that Caesar is not, right? That's a famous, I think that's a famous new perspective on Paul line, isn't it? Um, N.T. Right so for when sure, you, yeah. It isn't T right, right? Yeah. Um and so whenever you say Jesus is Lord, you're simultaneously contesting the earthly rule of Roman Caesar. And so the universal of the world is opposed in the name of the universal, quote, from above, despite the fact that this latter universal, the one from above, is founded in particularity and in the world. So political theology becomes less a way of becoming of being politically within the world which is differential composition, and more a way of being politically against because ontologically beyond the world. And then his last line here is, political theology becomes transcendent. And I thought this was interesting. So what you have is the world as constituted, you have an antagonism, but it's a transcendent antagonism, um, but it's also a necessary antagonism. That for Paul, his theology is necessarily antagonistic. Therefore, it is qualitatively different than the powers of the world, and thus it is constitutively antagonistic in its moving forward in the development of a community that itself is constituted in antagonism by distancing itself to the constituted powers of the world. And so I thought that there was a lot of Badiou here as well because the idea of the subject position is something that is created in the antagonism to the powers of the world. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean... It's been a long time since I read the Baju
1: book, so I can't remember if it's a little bit more tied to being an event or to his later stuff in Logics of Worlds. I'm assuming the former?
0: Maybe maybe I'm conflating all of them into one. I don't remember either. Yeah, we um, talked I, a bit I, about
1: I, the differences there. In the last yeah. the last episode, we talked about a bit how Barbara is responding a little bit more to being an event than Logics of Worlds, and that I thought maybe the Logics of Worlds stuff would have been a a, another category of, of options to sort of reformulate the idea of apocalyptic but that being said um maybe to make a little bit more sense of this, we can go back to that that sort of key idea of paul of the neither jew nor greek right paul says mm. that you're neither jew nor greek nor slave nor free nor man nor woman but all are one in christ right so he's saying we're erasing all these differences that used to exist between people right but I'm introducing a new universal that applies to all those or covers all those differences or erases all those differences. And that's being one in Christ. And so I think Barbara's absolutely right to say that Paul's introducing a transcendent universal, right? This is a universal that comes out of nowhere. It's not already within the world, right? It's not like you're not a nor a Greek, you're all Greek now. Right? It's not from <laughs> within the world, it's from totally outside, it's totally alien, it's totally new. Um, if it was
0: you're all Greek now, then it would have been the imperfect nihilism, right? Where you yeah. take the, the particular that is contingently constituted and then you inflate it to the status of the universal.
1: Yeah, so this is absolutely a kind of universalism in that sense. What Barbara's, I think, basically saying, to keep it very simple here, I don't think the claim is all that complicated. He's just saying, look, we can sort of have this antagonism with the world, but then sort of put it into the world right? The antagonism was the friends we made along the way. It's not the end result. That, that was supposed to be a joke.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, in my mind, I was laughing. Don't
1: worry. <laughs> yeah, the antagonism is actually <laughs> intrinsic to the relations in the first place, right? So it's like, it's something like we're neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, but we're kind of becoming Jew, becoming Greek, becoming Christian all at the same time. Um, mm. So it's sort of using that idea of the antagonism but rather than making it a transcendental um focus here it's ontologizing it right it's making it part of being itself and that end concept is the concept of interparticularity right Mm. or in some sense um being is becoming
0: Mm. yeah because he does and i don't remember where it is in the chapter but he does talk about this idea of uh It's kind of very Kierkegaardian, that there is like this perpetual construction of what it means to be Christian, right? That it's sort of something that that isn't pre-disclosed to us, but that rather the community is kind of creating that by taking on this mantle. Um, So there's a constructive project here. Which is what Paul does, right? He does a constructive
1: project of sort of conceptualizing this new universal. Well, this Christianity thing is totally new whatever he's talking about so we got to construct it right how can we construct it well using the materials we already have and sort of re- deconstructing and then reconstructing them and barbara's point is we can keep doing that in fact the radical potential of paul is to never stop doing that what was that last bit yeah the radical potential of paul is to say we can do that reconstruction and deconstruction and never stop doing it
0: mm. yeah i mean I know we've been talking about this name, N.T. Wright, for people who aren't familiar. He is a, um, he, I guess he's categorized as a New Testament scholar, but he's kind of more of a, he's kind of a theologian slash pastor now, more than anything. Or not pastor, but is he, a, is he, because he was for a bit the Bishop of Durham, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, I don't know if he's still, I don't think he is anymore. But anyway, so, um, but I think now he's just, a, he's just a, a pastor. Um, But he's written a bunch of books, N.T. Wright or Nicholas Thomas Wright, I think is his full name but um he has this this kind of idea that i that i kind of always liked uh, that helped me a lot when i was younger because when you are raised in the evangelical world you're basically taught that the canon is set down it ends at the book of revelation that it was uh, literally breathed out by god and it's handed to us and it's just our job to kind of like perpetually subsume ourselves under the infinite riches that are contained therein right um, we infamously had a pres- or had a had a at a teacher at our university who was really interested in like deconstructive theory. But what was the famous line that he said? You can deconstruct every other text, but except for the Bible, <laughs> which which deconstructs you, yeah. right. Special <laughs> pleading much? <laughs> so so that's the environment that we were accustomed to. And I think that most people think when they think of Christianity, even even the non-Christian types, they think that oh, Bible thumpers. This is how they view the Bible, right? N.T. Wright actually presented an alternative perspective on the Bible that I thought was really interesting. He says it's like the theater. He says it's like a five-act theater where we're given the first three or four acts, and then it's our job to create the fifth act. Now there is some interesting, like you know, like you said earlier, he does he is more conservative than either of us are uh, theologically and maybe politically and theoretically probably. Um, but there is something interesting again in this idea of. Things are handed down, and then, especially from Paul's perspective, Paul is given maybe like the first act, and then he's like, "All right, I got to create the second act here. How do we fit? How do we? How do I keep writing? Like the authors of the first act died. I've inherited this IP. I've been commissioned by Disney now to write the next uh, installment. Um, so I'm writing the next one, and then all of a sudden, now it goes to the next person, and then the next person has to write. And that's kind of the idea that there is this perpetual um, need." for construction for constitution for um development and it isn't this nice progressive linear unfolding of something that was already contained all in the first uh bit it isn't this nice like the causal mechanism is fully loaded and all we have to do is just like like rolling out the red carpet where you just have to unroll it and it just folds like all the potential is already established there isn't that kind of causality it's rather this process of imminent creation that Barbara establishes that is discontinuous and continuous, that is apocalyptic and disruptive, but that there's also some attachment to tradition. And it's that tension that I think is really interesting um, when we think about how it is that we understand what we can do with Christianity as a sort of resource at hand.
1: Yeah, I like that. I don't really remember that from reading NT Wright, but I think the way Wright would interpret um, that notion of of the Uh, New Testament is sort of like the the theater and you finish the last couple acts of the play, he would probably interpret that fairly conservatively, right? And be like, well, there's a certain set of things that follow from that, and it's not determinate what they are, but there's there's a certain set of things, and you kind of have to find yourself within it, and if it's discontinuous with that set of things, then the story doesn't make sense, right? Um, Whereas I think Barbara's going to say, no, the first three acts were kind of chaos, but not in a bad Mm -hmm. way, in a good way, in a way that has actual potential that we're kind of making a like a crazy Gaspar Noé art film here. So who knows what the fuck is coming next. Um so you probably have a much more open-ended interpretation even though they'd probably both agree with that that metaphor. You think? Mm.
0: Yeah, I do. I do think that's the case. And then what I would what I would suggest is I don't think that barber is coming along saying, "But I am the one who's going to introduce this cap on chaos." I think he's kind of saying, "No, there's there's a sort of pro- productivity in chaos." And that that's what thinking from imminence uh one recognizes and then two allows for it recognizes that there is this perpetual creation contestation disjunction um there's a frazzling oh that's a good word it's a frazzled you know that when i'm talking about the the borders they're like a frazzled border it's frazzling does that make sense um <laughs> like um, when you wake but, up in the morning your hair yeah yeah exactly um so it's it's that I think that even what he's saying moving forward, that we're still going to be working through that tension um, that is endemic to reality, I think is what he would say. You know, that is endemic to imminence, that is endemic to the process of expression and signification, the process of um doing political theology, to figuring out what meaning is and how it is that we order our lives, that it will always be a sort of, discontinuous, apocalyptic, diasporic endeavor.
1: Yeah, I think this is a good segue to the second half of this chapter where uh, Barbara talks about the four points of ambivalence that he finds in Pauline thought. So kind of using this idea of the discontinuity um, inherent in Paul's thought about the antagonism with the world and taking four different concepts and sort of seeing where we can find that potential for discontinuity and then go beyond what Paul was able to do or what Paul was willing to do. And those four areas are people, love, chaos, and the world. Hmm. And um I don't know if you want to just jump around or go through all four, but I especially I think wanted to talk about we talked a little about chaos already and the idea of well chaos is a positive thing for um for Barbara, whereas there's some sense in which Paul and those following Paul, he even includes Yoder here, take chaos as just an inherently kind of bad thing and want it to be managed via something like the uh, catacomb, right? Um, right. Where it's seen that, that, and a whole political lineage falls from that, right? Mm. Um. But I especially wanted to talk about the idea of love. Um, Barbara says in here somewhere that love is defined as the decentering of the self in favor of reciprocal co-constitution with the other. Hmm. I thought that was really interesting because it it jives with a number of sort of more theoretical notions of love that you hear, something about allowing yourself or being willing and open and vulnerable towards letting yourself be developed or constituted by somebody else. And the the opening up to love is in some sense that, right? Um hmm. I know Bedjuice says some similar things in like that book in Praise of Love that he wrote uh, a decade or so ago. Yeah, um, he
0: says something about how love is the transition from seeing the world as one to seeing it from the position of two.
1: Yeah. And Barbara's notion here is that what we should do is take this notion, which is kind of inherent to Paul, um, and say it's also true about the whole community and not just the individual. And he thinks that this is sort of already potentialized in Jesus' declaration for enemy love, right? To love your enemy, since it's one of my favorite things that uh, Jesus ever says is you should love your enemy because don't the worst people in the world love the ones that love them back already? So how are you special? (laughs) Mm. I I love that, right? Because it totally just like smacks you in the face. It's something you don't really realize until you think about it. But yeah, even like the people that I dislike the most in the world, probably love like their family and the people who love them back. So am I really any different than that? Mm -hmm. Um, It's a great line. Um, And this idea of love being applied to the community, I thought was, um, was really important because it's basically saying, not only should you individually love your enemy, but your community should love your community's enemy. And for Barbara, that means allowing that kind of reciprocal co-constitution not just of the other, but of the others, against your community, um, and that goes back to the, again the notion of di- uh, diaspora, right? And allowing yourself mm. to be constituted by, as if you're in diaspora and some um, in some alien land. And I thought that was a super interesting way of of getting at the sense in which Barber says we already have the potential for this in Paul. We're just bringing it out and using this notion of interparticularity to flesh out what it would actually be. And it's totally radical and totally against the grain of I think sort of kind of common Christian thinking because mm.
0: it really yeah, is the, the notion
1: that you know the the antagonism happened and it's over and now we're all about stasis mm. right that that I think is a really good way of reading the way that Paul's taken by most Christians today whether they're liberal or conservative
0: yeah this this goes to the tweet that I sent out um, in anticipation of this episode Um, and uh, it's kind of this this long section but I'll read it real quick it's um, in many ways this Pauline injunction echoes Jesus's declaration of enemy love if the I perfects itself in relation to a we then it is difficult to see how love can be anything other than limitless unless of course the we is not universal but instead located within the bounds of the Christian community. And then he, he goes on, so we'll just put an ellipses there, dot dot dot. Then he says, in other words, is love the way of being solely for those who are inside the Christian people? or is it something that precisely insofar as it is directed outside, that it is irreducible that it irreducibly problematizes the very notion of an inside? And then he says, again, ellipses, then he says, love demands a differential form. It cannot be identitarian. For a we necessarily exceeds its own reflexive sedimentation. It is intrinsically excessive. I fucking love that. I, I literally so
1: highlighted that in the book and, and said to myself, Austin's going to talk about this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I fucking love that so much. Um, <laughs> He has another quote right here. He says, To make one's identity contingent upon diasporic composition with the other is to put identity at risk. To foreground identity is to make diasporic composition impossible. Paul seems to wager on the side of the former. That idea of... Subjecting identity to contestation itself. Now, I'm thinking not just in terms of like the religious community, which is where people can think of right now, right? Like, like yes, you do. You insulate yourself, you hunker yourself down, and then of course, uh, all the passages about loving your neighbor and all this other stuff can just be interpreted. Ah, oh, it's about just loving the people who are in your church and sacrificing yourself to people who are already who are already converted. They're already a part of the community, and your relation to the outside is one still of contestation and suspicion because. They're potential uh, f- uh, future members of the community. They have the potential to be redeemed, but at the moment they're your enemy because they're not part of the community. And so it it just reproduces uh, this inside-outside um, formula. Or also, Whereas, also, just to add to that real yeah.
1: quick before you go on, it could also be enemy love means making the other like me, right? Not, mm. not necessarily just treating them with suspicion, but especially if I'm a person who's in a privileged or powerful community and the others are sort of underprivileged or are sort of on the exterior, on the margins, I can just try to make them like me, which is another way in which I think, like, enemy love can be bastardized into this actually really horrible and kind of violent um, relationship with others.
0: So I know this is a very sort of sticky subject, but I also can't help but think about current debates around identity politics in this as well.
1: Oh, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking.
0: So... There is a let's say violent form of identity politics. That is precisely what you just said. That that person is an enemy. Um, they they can potentially become a we, a part of the community, but there is a requirement for violence in order for that to take place. So the question is: Is what? How do we understand the contemporary landscape of identity politics? within this like inside-outside formula that Barbara is establishing, and then think potentially along this more radical political theological notion of just dissolving the notion of interior-exterior altogether. How do we think about that? And I'm going to let you talk about this because I don't want to get myself in trouble.
1: <laughs> well, I'm, I want you to talk in a minute about exactly how you're thinking about it relates to identity politics. But I was thinking specifically just about some of the debates around nationalism um, yes. that are happening today. And that's only tangentially related to identity politics. Um, I guess not tangentially. It's just the, kind of the reverse of the the liberal id pole uh, focus is this idea of the national identity, which is intrinsic, right? Um, one earns it through birth, pretty much, right? And it forms oneself, and it, it's totally static and cannot change and cannot evolve. Um, and there's a notion in which, you know, nationalists are willing to allow conversion right but it has to be whole conversion from other into same and that's of course violence and i think anybody who's not on the right sees that as being horrific right um but this usual solution to that isn't something like what barbara's talking about we radically change the very idea of what identity is identity is you know reciprocal co-constitution with the other um, the the sort of liberal solution seems to be more like no, we just have these, you know, uh, multifarious identities, and they can change, and we can choose them, and we can take them on and put them off, to use like a kind of you know Judith Butlerian notion of performance. Um, and well, I think that that's better than the kind of right wing nationalist type of identity politics. And there's a, definitely more of a truth to it. There's there's certainly a sense in which identities do change, right? Um right. What barber's asking for here is even more radical than that. Yes, cuz he's he's basically saying not only do identities change over time, and not only can we in some sense voluntarily or in some vague sense voluntarily um change them and adjust them, but we don't even have a stable identity in the first place. There is no single identity that a person has or even a single set of identities that a person has.
0: And that's what's crucial for understanding Barber's framework here. He's not just talking about whether or not there are different identities. He's talking about the conditions under which these emergent identities themselves, um, the conditions under which they are allowed to even uh, contingently express themselves. And it's the fact that there is this imminence that is perpetually constructive that is beyond them that conditions them which means that there is a there is a contingency to these identities that needs to be recognized but not just simply in the Butlerian sense but even more than that for understanding the maybe the transcendental conditions that allow for them in the first place that there is excess constantly at the margins and It is then attesting to that excess that allows for identity construction to be productive perpetually. And so the problem with with maybe sort of certain tendencies within liberal identity politics is when it rejects that perpetual con- uh, constructionism, when it hunkers down into its silo as though the identity that's constructed therefore becomes a universal. That's when it can then fall into the, the, the pit of um, a sort of uh, a sort of nihilism that um, in Prozorov's term or in Barber's terms, that's when it can foreground identity that makes diasporic composition impossible, as he says. And I think that's something that's really interesting. And then, and I'm not and I'm not I'm not gonna make like a causal connection between identity politics and this next next thing, or necessarily between like blue labor concerns and this next thing, but immediately after this section, he then does talk about uh, Like just war theory. And I thought this was also a really interesting section. Did you like this section? Yeah, definitely. And the reason was because basically most people think that, oh, and he talks about Reinhold Niebuhr here, who um, it's this idea that there uh, is some sort of tragic compromise in the Christian declaration that, uh, you know, they talk about peace and they talk about turning the other cheek, but at the same time, you know, so many Christians are all about uh, supporting, like I don't know, think about the neocons, all about supporting American imperialism because it's in the name of democracy or you know the Judeo-Christian Western civilized concerns or something along those lines. And then he says, but actually, um, that sort of idea, it, there isn't really a contradiction there. But actually, there's this, there's this, um, who is it? Is it Bell? What's what's his first name? Is it Daniel Bell? Daniel Bell, um, who says that actually, um, that that there's a sense in which the advocacy for just war fits really into like that Zizekian line where actually, no, it's that if God exists, then those who are subsumed or that who have access to and control over that God can justify anything as long as it's in the service of that larger vision. So there's really no contradiction there. It actually fits kind of perfectly to explain a lot of these tensions. So again, once you have this fixed interior, and all of the attendant responsibilities and potentials contained within it. And then that means that as long as you can use that as your regulative principle, then anything you do also is kind of justified um, coming out from that, in service to that. And I think that's one of the possible expressions or risks that Barber finds in identity constitution that is foregrounded to the rejection of this diasporic composition that he's advocating. And I thought that was kind of a really interesting way for me to understand or just to solidify my understanding of how it is that Christians are so um, in their zealotry, that they're so supportive of like American imperialism, which seems to be counterintuitive or that seems to be a contradiction to the messages of love and turning the other cheek and peace and things like that in the Bible. So I thought that was really powerful for me as well. And it's not just Christians. Like, you could also apply this to Stalinism and how it is that they justify their invasion of Hungary in 1956. Well, it's because they're the ones, again, that hold the regulative principle about what is right and what is wrong and what is sayable and what is unsayable and what we can do and what we ought not to do. And as long as you are in control of that, then you can basically justify anything insofar as it's serving that formal idea that you've foregrounded ahead of time.
1: Do you think there's a sense in which Barbara's kind of saying... That modern or contemporary Christians want to deal with the content of the gospel, but not the form. Whereas oh, he's yeah. saying that the form is the important thing to, or should be the important thing to recapture. And that content only sort of follows from the form.
0: He says something about that in chapter two. Remember where he says um, something along the lines of, The concern here is that the form of Christianity is itself disjunctive or diasporic and that that's the problem is if the form is wrong, then that means that the content will be wrong in a way, right? And so this is why it's a very Deleuzean project, because Deleuze develops this thing called transcendental empiricism. It's not just a bland empiricism that's just simply concerned with like a positivist, immediate interpretation of sense data, which would be the content of a thing, right? That you're looking at like bits of information, and then you scale up to an aggregate, and you make an inference. But... Transcendental empiricism recognizes, okay, that there's something extremely important about the empirical project of David Hume, for example. But simultaneously, there's also something really important about the Kantian project, of formal investigation, that conditions the content. The difference is is that for Deleuze, the individual significations are co-constitutive with the formal. And that the formal, this relationship of part to whole, in myriological terms isn't one that is, like, uh, subject to Russell's paradox because the form itself is also malleable. It isn't, it isn't um, a totality. It isn't a world of all worlds, but it's sort of this frazzled barrier that itself is constantly in processual flow based on the uh, shift in significations taking place as its constitutive parts um, that produce events. And those events are primarily the shifts in the significative constitutive components of the quote-unquote totality. But it's not really a totality. It's a sort of like diasporic um, formal framework. Does that make sense?
1: And that's basically just an explication of difference preceding identity, logically, right?
0: Ex- exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, identity and is difference... considered by difference. Exactly. exactly. Yeah,
1: I exactly. think that makes perfect sense. And it's it's good because it's helping me as much as I've struggled with understanding the the idea of transcendental empiricism situating it within this locus here that Barbara's doing is is helping me conceptualize how that works in practice
0: um yeah it's strange I almost feel like if someone is like hey how do I understand Deleuze I kind of want to be like it's gonna sound weird but read this book on on Christianity (laughs) 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 you know yeah exactly it's 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 working it's having that effect
1: on me personally um working through this book but really quick, mm-hmm. to get back to the the four ambivalences, something you said before you started talking about Dele- uh, Deleuze and transcendental empiricism there. Um, this is really helpful, I think, the way that Barbara has sort of schematized um, the book so far, because it's really helping me understand where I think I track and where I don't track with the Deleuzean project. And especially with regard to this idea about identity politics and how it fleshes out in that way. Because I'm seeing where the effects differ uh, or the conclusions differ from my own, and I can trace that back to its origins. So the basic idea, it seems to me, is that if we're going to kind of map this onto contemporary politics, right-wing nationalist identity politics is this sort of violent, originary universalism in the classic sense, Right. Um, It wants to sort of take every other and violently and involuntarily transform it into itself. Um, And I think everyone else sees that as being as ugly as it is, right? Um, The sort of left version of identity politics that's in response to that is to just kind of destroy the very notion that there is a universal identity, right? And I think Mm. what um, Prozorov would have called that like passive nihilism, right? Just give up on the idea that there is this universal project.
0: The former is active nihilism. Because I would say that the difference is, is that it kind of also recognizes... Well, there it can come in two different forms. It can either be the imperfect nihilism where it takes a, a regional particularity and then inflates it to the status of the universal. But really, that's not what they do. Like the people like Steve Bannon and Richard Spencer, they're like, we're cool if black people are around, but they can just have their own communities, right? This is Western civilization. This is European culture. So it isn't saying at least they're paying lip service. They probably are assholes, uh, even more assholes than they already are. So I'm not trying to soften their criticism. But the idea is is that, no, 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 like we just kind of want to have our own little world. And so then what you have is this kind of recognition that there are these competing narratives like the sort of liberal identity, political passive nihilism. Um, It's just that it's the active will of the people Right that sort of Nietzschean active nihilism that Carl Schmidt the will or um, Leo Strauss who I'm not as familiar with but my friend Darius has kind of introduced me to it's that idea of the active will that is what what can characterize that nationalism as well if that makes sense
1: yeah Schmidt calls it decision right yeah politics yeah. is originates in an active decision and and I do wonder a bit about if we're creating a distinction where there is no difference with that I'm not sure that that universalist project has ever really been that different than it mm. is now. But it's neither here nor there. Um and the the issue that that Barber et al. would have with the left version of the identity politics, right? Which is in response to this growing nationalism, is that it doesn't it, it wants to have these um little particularities, right? And these little sets of identities that group together according to how they overlap. Um but that's not gonna politically at least, um, that's not going to actually, one, defeat the right-wing nationalism. And it also just doesn't actually get to the you know accurate internal representation of what individual human beings are, or, or even individual communities, right? Instead, we need to think even more deeply about the antagonism. It's not just that individuals have multiple identities which overlap, but individuals are constantly having their identities co-constituted by everything else around them. Um, And there Mm. is ultimately difference at the heart of their identities and not just a single static or even multiple static identities. Mm. And I think my issue ultimately is while I think it's right in its critique of the sort of leftist identity politics and that I think it's correct that we aren't this set of identities which kind of flow and change over time. um, I don't think that The answer to that, at least as of now, is any sort of theoretical or set of theoretical concepts which leads us to this reciprocal co-constitution idea. Because some reciprocal co-constitutions are bad. I don't want to be co-constituted with a virus. That's Mm. bad. I don't Mm. want to be co-constituted with the local Nazi group. Right? I mean, we're right to oppose that idea. And it's not just because they have the wrong idea of their identity, right? I mean, if if Barber is right, then basically everybody has the wrong idea about their identity and their identities, plural. So any sense any sense of reciprocal co-constitution or interparticularity is always going to be with other people who don't have a good grasp on
0: their own set of identities or how they're changing, right? So, listen, motherfucker, you're trying to sneak in some meta ethics here. Um, I can feel it. Well, yeah, I think it's important just to
1: say that if the outcome is this reciprocal co constitution idea and there's no sense embedded in it in which we can judge which yeah. of those is good and which of those is bad, I think this is a good theoretical enterprise, but I think it's very clearly missing something if it's missing that. And I think yeah, that I agree. what it's missing is missing internally. It's not just something we have to add to it. I think it's something, some kind of gap within the concept itself or the set of concepts itself. And I'm not saying that I have a really good critique yet. Um, Mm. but there's just this is just kind of what I'm what I'm thinking actively right now um, about this. And it's really good because this is such a helpful way of sort of forming thoughts, right? Having this Mm. antagonism with the text and being like This is really good. I think the criticisms he's making are are so on point. It's so relevant, even though it's not even written about, particularly about politics, right, and political identity. Um, And you're wrestling with it. Like, Jacob wrestles with God, right? And that's the most productive Mm. way to deal with text. I'm not, like, disparaging um, this text at all. But I do think that that's that's the thought that's being spurred in me right now through reading it, and through reading this chapter especially.
0: Do you think... Because I, I don't disagree. I think that the understanding the normative criteria that conditions the very potential for co-constitution is a crucial element to this entire project that he hasn't addressed yet. I don't know that he will in this text. I don't know that that's his point in this text, but I like that you're noticing that because for me, this goes to the heart of my book that's going to be coming out. By the way, motherfuckers, my book's coming out in July. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you guys about it soon. But this is one of the things that I that I am concerned with because I agree with you. And so what I wonder is, and I, I'm a little bit more optimistic about the Deleuzean Project, about being able to provide a possibility for meta-ethical considerations or for normative frameworks. This is what I refer to in my book as like the future images, right? These hyperstitional images that themselves are subject to the co-constitutive expressive project of immanence, Because that's why it's a transcendental empiricism um, rather than just some sort of empiricism or uh, a transcendental project in like the Kantian sense is, um, is that the element that is transcendental, I think, does allow for us to think about those normative frames that structure the boundaries of... Uh, the potential or the relations of co-constitution itself, and so I do think that within the Deleuzean project, at least, at least I think this is what what we could do with the Deleuzian project. So maybe what Barber's doing with Christianity, maybe I am trying to do with Deleuze, um, and maybe I think other individuals have as well. I think that you can allow for um, a disjunctive and itself diasporic meta ethics to um, to serve as a crucial component to the larger transcendental empirical project um, but the problem is is that it's not it's not um, foregrounded meta ethics right it's that even in the pursuit of investigating those meta ethical frames of investigating the normative that even that itself is a fraught procedure and I yeah. know that 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 might seem unsatisfying because you're not standing on solid ground, but um, there is something essentially unsettling about this diasporic transcendental empirical project.
1: Yeah, I think this is just sort of my intuition, and I don't have really good grounds yet for 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 this. But it does seem to me like this these notions of interparticularity and uh, differential co-constitution act more as tools right especially tools of critique and I think I talked about this a lot with the Prozorov book as well right with sort of using these notions more as as tools of critique than as actual building blocks um, for a universalism
0: yeah. and
1: again I think it, it comes back to this idea that the normativity is not at all foregrounded and I don't see how normativity becomes a a sort of accidental consequence hmm. of one's philosophy um i think when you yeah when you do that it just it doesn't work out um but that's my intuition and i'm interested to see how that how that fleshes out both in sort of this book obviously in the immediate sense but also talking more about this with you and seeing how that fleshes out because yeah my my intuition is is skepticism but hmm. in, intriguing or intrigued skepticism a good kind of skepticism right which makes you yeah, want to yeah. find out more
0: it's it's philosophy it begins with wonder or puzzlement right dude i just got really excited with thinking about the next few years with us working through these things i mean hopefully we continue with the podcast and maybe we'll write something together i really would love to do that at some point but i really got excited because i do feel like our interests are both divergent and convergent at a really interesting point of tension and I think that this is going to create some really fun work in the next few years, especially with your uh, future plans that you have on the horizon. And then considering my project, it's kind of going into a little bit of a different direction, you know, with being concerned with like financialization and things like that. But nevertheless, I I, I do find it that there's a really interesting sort of um, like a Venn diagram overlap of where our work is really going to find a kind of productive point. It's kind of fun. Yeah, dude, I
1: think that, you know, people listen to the podcast probably think that we think the same things because we agree a lot and certainly politically i think we are mostly agree we're agreed on almost everything probably Mm. um at the general level at least uh we have very divergent sort of areas of interest in in the broader academic sense and i like it so much because because we sort of helped form each other in our early sort of theoretical and intellectual years in our you know late teens early 20s I don't think we're ever going to diverge at that like moral, political kind of foundational level of what drives us, and what we care about. But we're going to, we have these very different areas of interest in philosophy and in academia generally. And so it's, yeah, it's always super interesting to me to, to see how you get into these areas of you know finance and economy and just talking about stuff. And I'm just like, what the fuck are you talking about? I have no idea what this is and trying to kind of, bring it back to that foundational motivating set of concepts that I know you hold. And that is actually what helps me understand it, like in a hermeneutic sense, Mm. because I can see where you're coming from given the sort of starting point or the initial conditions uh, that you have. So that's, I think probably the coolest thing about um, having an intellectual friendship, right? Is Mm. you know the person at a level way beneath and more foundational than their intellect and Mm. you can place their intellectual contributions right from the way they talked what they write and so on and so forth within that scope in a way you can't do when you're just reading someone's book that you and you don't know the person Um, and it's not just like some really kind of simple and naive like i'm gonna i'm gonna do like an intellectual biography of you right which usually ends up papering over all the discontinuities and all the you know complexities of someone's life this is like actually understanding why someone cares about something and that can add so much to what that thing is it's and especially to its potential right because you can see Hmm. what the other person finds as potential in it and that can kind of inflame it in you and that's i think it's coolest thing about doing this podcast and I just got
0: a little teary-eyed <laughs> Troy, just broed out on me and got me all emotional <laughs> and shit. Um, yeah, I agree. And it's. I think it's really interesting. I think if you go back to our first episode, too, and we didn't really know what we were doing with the podcast up until now. I feel like <laughs> it, it's really like in the past year, whereas I feel like the podcast has kind of come into its own. And it's been so productive like like not that it wasn't productive and then we didn't have uh, like interesting and maybe stimulating and maybe even important conversations prior but for me at least the past year has been so transformative like this is this podcast and this hour and a half that we get to chat each week about whatever topic it is that we're addressing is really really helpful with formulating my thoughts moving forward and um I think and I hope that people who are listening also are kind of coming along this because it's not like we're it's not like this is church where we have everything and we're just distilling this pre-established knowledge, but we're actually developing. And so there's like a there's like a flow, you know, Um, and I think it's I think it's going to be super interesting to see where things go forward, especially if you keep reading that fucking analytic shit, man. Then you're going to make me read some more analytic shit. I'm going to be reading about like Martha Nussbaum and shit on the podcast. I don't know what we're going to be doing, but um, it's going to be really interesting (laughs) to see how that stuff, you know, informs my thoughts as well, you know, and then I'm going to force you to read some weird shit on like financial derivatives from like an economic sociological perspective at some point. So,
1: oh yeah, um, I have no doubt. I made you read (laughs) the Taggart, man.
0: You dug it. So don't even start. I did. And I dug the (laughs) Cohen book and I dug the Cohen book. Fuck, I, I I dug it so much that I literally rewrote the last chapter of my book to engage with GA Cohen. So um yeah, really fascinating. Well cool. Uh, is there any last thing you want to say just about the barber chapter? Um like in preparation for the next chapter, like where you think it's going next? Yeah, I mean I think
1: the the next chapter is about religion, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, religion in the last chapter is about secularism. So I think we'll just see how um it seems like barbara has this kind of triad right christianity transforms into religion transforms into secularism and he's gonna want to talk about this same level of discontinuity between those three uh stages that he's talked about this imminent discontinuity um, that we talked about in this chapter so um we'll just be ready to talk more about the idea of religion and problematizing that in a similar way as we problematized christianity when paul's not mm. here
0: Cool. Looking forward to it. Sweet. Now it's time for the final segment of the episode, The Sticky Leaves. This is where one of us gets to recommend something that is, or share about something that is giving us meaning in a world that might be devoid of meaning. This week, it's Troy's turn. So Troy, what is your sticky leaf? So last week,
1: I spent each night watching an episode of a British show called Broken, starring Sean Bean. That was uh, it aired last year, twenty eighteen. <laughs> does he die? Event? I'll I'll spoil it right now and say he does not die either in the first episode <laughs> or at all. So it's a huge, oh, it's... <laughs> huge uh, break from his usual his usual work. Uh,
0: no, I've not <laughs> heard of the show.
1: <laughs> um, so the the idea is it's from a I forget the name of the the writer. Um, but he's kind of a longtime British TV writer. I think he's written since like the 80s. He's very well known in British circles. I've never seen any of his shows because it's only in the last 10 years or so that, you know, British shows have kind of been made with a, a big time British shows, at least, have been made with a kind of universal English speaking audience. Mm. Um, so I think his shows are very, very English, typically. Um, and this one is as well, although I, I enjoyed it a lot. The basic premise is Sean Bean plays a Catholic priest. In a very in a poor, somewhat ruralish area in England, um, and he's the name of the show is Broken because he himself has suffered through uh, child abuse and sexual abuse growing up, and it eventually leads to him wanting to become a priest. Um, even though some of the abusers were Catholic priests themselves, so it's very timely in that sense. Mm. And he's dealing with a bunch of parishioners who are themselves extremely broken in each episode focuses on a different broken person. And they deal with things from gambling addiction to poverty to um, uh, abuse for being homosexual to police violence, Mm -hmm. all sorts of things, all of which are very timely given uh, contemporary circumstances. And at first, this show was very critically acclaimed, and I think Sean Bean won the BAFTA for Best Actor for it. And he absolutely deserves it because he's he's incredible in this show. Um, at first, I was I was frustrated with the show because as good as it is, and how well written as it is, and how well acted it is, it seemed like it was just tragedy porn. Like it was, hmm. here's here's an individual. Here's how they're broken, both by their experiences and by their societal circumstances, and everything sucks, and everyone's going to die, and everyone's going to be miserable, and religion can't do anything to solve it. And the parishioner, Sean Bean, is going to try and his – you know Sean Bean, right? You want to believe in him and you want him to be your father. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's so kind and humble and um, – but at the same time has this inner strength and you want to be like him, right? That's what Sean Bean mm. always signifies. Um, the whole point of the show is it's not going to work. He can't resolve the brokenness in any of these people. And it was so hard to watch because mm. you love it and you love it. And after you watch it, you're just like, shit, man, this sucks. Um, and I was frustrated. And I don't want to mm. say anything about the end. But if anybody was to watch this show, and I would certainly encourage anybody who can deal with some of those you know dark and deep topics to watch it. The way that the show ends was just so overwhelmingly beautiful. And I'm not going to say how it, it ends, but... I'll just say the the last the sixth episode the last episode is about him Father Michaels played by Sean Bean and that he's broken which has been building up through the whole the whole series and part of his brokenness is the fact that he can't solve or resolve the brokenness in anybody else and that's his whole mission is to help them do that but he can't mm. and ultimately the whole thing just changes and it's all about forgiveness and mm. the realization that brokenness can't always be resolved and that Mm. sometimes that's okay and what do you do with that is it just despair or is Mm. something about forgiveness a way that we can actually cope and deal with it and it doesn't give any easy answers it's not like a hand wavy like oh you know forgiveness in the story of christ or whatever will just resolve those um, problems for us and we'll be fine it does not do that at all but it hints at something promising about about forgiveness um, as a resolution or some, some sort of way of dealing with brokenness. And mm. I was just so moved by the end of the series. And I know for a lot of people it would be difficult to watch a series and the first five hours are just are, are incredible but difficult and don't make you feel good. And then the finally like, you get that sort of resolution in the, in the sixth episode. That can be hard for some people who don't have the like, emotional patience maybe to deal with it. But I would encourage anybody who um, enjoys British shows or challenging shows or dark shows, especially dark in the sort of um, more emotional and spiritual sense. not this is really dark like True Detective or something. Mm. Um, to give it a try because I, I don't think anyone's heard about it in America at least. Mm-mm. what? Where Where did you see it? What I don't remember. I don't remember. I probably saw it on Reddit or something. Um, but... I mean, I doubt you can find it anywhere other than through, you know, the illegal means. But uh, I'm pretty sure it's not illegal since it's not airing in the United States. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> but uh, I think you can do that if you if it's not actually airing anywhere in the United States because no one in America has the rights to it, right? Uh,
0: I am not a... Yeah, I'm going to say that it's possible. That's copyright <laughs> lawyer or... IP lawyer, uh, so I'm going to say I don't know, Troy. <laughs> um, I wonder if you could order it on Amazon or something like that. Mm. I don't know. Interesting. Maybe. Well, I mean, like I give a fuck. Go do what you, People, do what you got to do to access <laughs> the shit that you got to access,
1: okay? But well, we are um, not encouraging any uh, potentially illegal ways of... But I'm also acquiring. not
0: discouraging you from being inventive, so... <laughs> um, But no, I am... Um, I mean that sounds really interesting. Uh I I I've always it, too. it kind of I mean I know it's it's very different, but again there's this this type of drama that I love that deals with faith and crisis and existential concerns. I mean that's why I love The Leftovers so much, which yes. is one of my favorite TV shows I've ever seen. And I still I feel like it's unfortunate because people know about it. But it doesn't have the popular appeal because it's not, there aren't like boobs and fast cars and there's nothing easy. And then even at an intellectual level, there's nothing easy about it. It, it leaves you at the end, even at, I, I, I know some people are like, what the fuck happened in the last episode? Where I'm like, I love it! Because the mystery remains, right? That there's still uncertainty, there's still questions, there's still this this discomfort. That it leaves you with, um, which obviously, as a as someone who's you know a philosopher, I, I find very powerful and interesting. Um, I think that that's one of the, the great things that art can do. Not all art has to be that way. Sometimes it's nice to have a nice little bow wrapped around the end of like a Fast and Furious film or whatever. But <laughs> hey
1: um, dude, what is it about American TV series and movies that just cannot deal intellectually or with depth with religious? ideas or religious I didn't I didn't want
0: to generalize I was going to say this but That's I didn't true. want to do it yeah. It really
1: is generally true everyone's just afraid to do it even though way more people in America are involved in religious institutions than in somewhere like England yeah England has all these really great especially TV series that deal in an important and secular way with religious institutions it's so funny that America just seems incapable of doing that
0: I mean part of it is that I think there's there's an essential like easy hedonism that really characterizes much of American culture which is that we need to have things that produce happiness things that kind of have a nice little um a nice capstone to them because that allows us to feel like we have managed the problem um it's like a form of risk management actually in uh in, in cinematic form, but I also wonder if there's like a larger theoretical thing pertaining to how it is that we understand time and how it is that we understand and relate to the future in this. There's um, a sociologist named Elena Esposito, and I don't know if this demarcation is, is perfectly generalizable the way that she does, but there is something interesting in it where she says that the European conception of the future is much more about like you prepare in the present for the future, Whereas the American conception of the future is that you uh, take the future to prepare of the present. And that there's this image of the future that conditions the present. And so I wonder if there's something about this in there as well, is that the future is already this realizable or realized thing, and then the things that we experience in the present are just kind of like instantiations of that. And so that, that creates a sort of like easy teleology, whereas there's an openness in the European idea that you're kind of just working in the present you know, you're, you're doing your best to mitigate potential problems in the future, but nevertheless, there's still an openness of the future.
1: And that was way more deep than I thought the issue was. I thought it was just because <laughs> Hollywood hates religious people, but
0: whatever. I, I mean, that's part <laughs> of it, you know. But that's why, that, that, that's why Paul Schrader's um, First Reformed was such a breath of fresh air.
1: Yeah, exactly. And why it, it probably so didn't get yeah.
0: the attention it deserved.
1: Yeah, I think even though it's definitely not in any way uh, proselytizing. Um, you just can't even allow the very idea of a story about religious people to to receive awards, like, even though yeah. it's such an obviously highbrow drama.
0: Again, I, I think that, that we've talked about this before, but there's this influence of, like, new atheism, and there's this resentment. It's like you either have hyper-evangelical Bible thumpers, or you have, like, Bill Maher. And yeah, Exactly. And it's really difficult for, like, do you know who Nathan Robinson is? The guy that runs Current Affairs? No. He was live blogging or live tweeting or whatever, the Zizek Peterson debate, and he says at the outset, he's like, I hate both of these men, so I was like, oh, great, so then why the fuck are you doing this? Just to be <laughs> resentful and to hate tweet? Like, this is going to be a shit show of a blog, but I just briefly skimmed it, and a couple of the things that he he said was, I mean, he was so uncharitable, even his in, in his interpretation of Zizek, because for him... It was, like, unscientific, and he's, like, this new atheist kind of guy, and the fact that Zizek is entertaining these, these like, mystical ideas uh, about, uh, you know, ideology, and he talks about G.K. Chesterton, and he talks about God, um, you know, for Robinson, that's all just nonsense, and it's just, like, brute science, right? It's like in the Chomsky-Zizek debate, Zizek is a charlatan, and it's all about, like, this rationality, this positivist rationality. That's the bad side of Chomsky, I would say. Um, And a lot of that characterizes so much of, like, left and liberal discourse in America. And then the conservatives are all like, "Nah, man, like, Jesus is God and angels are real and you're going to hell, you know? And obviously there is some gradation between there, but it's definitely the minority, especially thoughtful engagements with religion from the left. That is extremely minoritarian.
1: Yeah, I do wonder, and this is maybe just fanciful thinking, but I wonder if we had more really deep intellectual and sympathetic dealings with just religious culture in general, if there would be less of this market for the, uh, what was the movie about abortion clinics that just came out and made a billion dollars? Unplanned? Yeah. But there'd be less of that <laughs> happening, or fireproof <laughs> and stuff like that, which is obviously kind of you know, just drivel um right because there, there's obviously a market for dealing with with religious um people institutions ideas all these things and it's just not at all served um by sort of you know the hollywood institution or whatever i once i knew a guy once who wanted to do something like this he was kind of a a, a somewhat liberal christian he worked in hollywood he wanted to he produced a series and actually read the pilot and uh, commented on it for him. No, you don't know who this guy is. Oh, um, and he wanted to. It was a series about uh, a, some like a couple of pastors who get involved in all sorts of like sexual promiscuity and, but then like one of them's a total cynic and the other actually kind of believes in what um what he's doing, but he but he has secret doubts and it was sort of like an HBO prestige drama. It read almost like. Mm. um like breaking bad or something um mm. but it basically revolves around like pastors at a local church <laughs> and uh, i thought like man that would be so badass if this thing was made like it's, it's totally rated r there's like nudity and sex and everyone's dropping you know <laughs> f bombs all the time but it like deals seriously with these people it's not like purely cynical about them um mm. that kind of thing just would never fly i just i i would imagine a hollywood exec reading that and just their head exploding and just being like this is incoherent
0: brother it is <laughs> It's there's this tension in Hollywood between the creatives and the executives. And the executives wanna be creatives and they think they're fucking creatives and they're the ones with the money and they can green light the programs. And when you sit there, I was sitting in a meeting with the president of alternative programming at NBC Universal. And I remember the fact that he could not understand this very simple premise for a sort of it was a reality show idea that my partners and I were developing that also had a really sort of um, like social program element to it where it's like making the world a better place, empowering people sort of thing. And the fact that he could not see that this wasn't like Shark Tank, which is what they <laughs> were trying to replace at the time because I think that it was like fizzling out. The fact that he couldn't see how this was like in that lineage meant that he just completely discredited it. And I was like, no, no you don't understand. There's excitement and intrigue and drama, but then there's also this social element. And like his ultimate conclusion was like, yeah, you just what where does it fit into is it shark tank or is it uh oh god what was that tie the, the show um where they like move that bus and then the house is created um god, i have no idea is. what you're talking about <laughs> oh you don't know you don't know reality television the people who are listening know what i'm talking about um but th- the fact that like even though it was i mean it wasn't like shark tank as much but it was kind of in that wheelhouse but because because he just was like uh, bottom line is this like how is this going to appeal to the millions of people who love Shark Tank? And I'm like, well, (laughs) this is how. And oh, it's so infuriating, which is why I love that HBO actually has a little bit more leniency. And part of the reason why I love the autonomy that Netflix gives, but there's just too much, man. Then there's too much, because then something like this does get produced on Netflix, and it gets lost. Yeah. You know? So that's my other frustration. Amazon and Netflix, and now Apple are going to try to... They're going to allow uh, outlets for creatives to have autonomy in their creation, but it's just going to get lost in the fucking field, you know? And then, I don't, I don't know. You know what we know we got to do, dude? Jubilee! we got to make Jubilee, man.
1: I think <laughs> for people who don't know, we often. have
0: a TV show. We won't talk. <laughs> I do too. We have a TV show that we're going to make at one point. People, don't worry. It's, as a, it's in our 10-year plan.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Your job is to get famous first. And then this can be your passion project.
0: Oh, God. Oh, I don't have time to get famous. <laughs> 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 All right. Let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Thank you guys for checking out another episode. Um, as we said it, at the outset, if you find value in what we're producing, if you want access to bonus content, we got a new episode that we're actually going to record right now, which will be released as this episode is released, so it should be live. We also have a newsletter that's going to be coming out uh, in the next... Actually, by the time this episode is out, the newsletter will be out, as well as uh, the option to recommend topics for future episodes, which we have... Uh, we are fielding suggestions right now at patreon.com, so go over there if you are a patron. If you're not a patron and you want access to any of these benefits, go to patreon.com slash Um yeah, and then if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can owls underscore at underscore dawn. Same on Insta, and you can email us at owls at dawnpodcast at gmail dot com. What else am I forgetting?
1: Just one more thing, dude. Oh, what's that? Das Padania, constant.